Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you who are joining us for the first time today, welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Susanna Hellman, and I'm the co-curator of our exhibition, Cook and the Pacific. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal, Noonawal and Ngambri people, past and present, for caring for this land we're now privileged to call home. Cook in the Pacific includes many rare items that we've been privileged to borrow from public and private collections, museums, archives and libraries across Australia and overseas. These include a model of the endeavour which has been lent to us by the Australian National Maritime Museum in Sydney, along with ballast, a cannonball and a coral encrustation from a cannon retrieved in 1969 um, from where the endeavour struck the reef in North Queensland in June 1770. We have also borrowed one of the endeavour's cannon from the National Museum of Australia. The Endeavour began its life as the Whitby Collier, the Earl of Pembroke, and when it was scuttled off the coast of Newport, Rhode Island in 1778, it was known by a different name. Only a couple of days before Cook and the Pacific opened, the news that the wreck of the Endeavour had been located swept the world. We were, of course, delighted. The Australian National Maritime Museum has partnered with the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project in the search. Today we are privileged to hear from the museums, Kieran Hosty and Dr James Hunter, who have both been involved in the recent rediscovery. Please join me in welcoming Kieran Hosty and Dr James Hunter to discuss this discovery and the ongoing work still to be done. Uh, thank you everyone for coming along today to listen to our talk about the finding of HMB Endeavour. Now, um, this is sort of one of the world's uh, worst, cape, worst cases of secrecy. None of, no one is actually supposed to know that we actually found HMS, HMB Endeavour. It is actually a secret and we may actually, as the, as the day, as the afternoon sort of progresses, we may actually talk to you a little bit about that. Um, First of all, I have to acknowledge the fact that the Australian National Maritime Museum has been working with a number of people in the hunt for HMB Endeavour uh, Lord Sandwich for a number of years. And I have to admit also that there is a number of embarrassing slides, images, in this presentation which shows me uh, slightly younger than what I am now. <laughs> Maritime Museum has been involved in the hunt for HMB Endeavour since 1999. So, okay, that's actually the last century. I've been involved, I hate to tell people this, I've actually been involved looking for HMB Endeavour for the, since the last century. Okay, that's a hell of a long time. So, um, I have to acknowledge also that I'm uh, working with my partners, the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project, which is a what they call in the United States of America an avocational organisation. And they run on, to use an Australian colloquialism, they run on the smell of an oily rag. And they do things slightly different. They have a tiny budget and they look after shipwrecks in the state of Rhode Island. Now, Australia has around about eight to 9,000 shipwrecks around the coast of Australia. In the state of Rhode Island, they have around about 4,000 shipwrecks. 
and their budget that they use to manage their shipwrecks, the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project, have a, has around about $8,000 a year to manage that project. So they live in a sort of totally different world to us in Australia, and I might talk to you a little bit about that as well as we progress. So it has been a very lengthy progress, a, a very lengthy uh, process, but in fact there is reasons behind that. One of our more recent pro uh, uh, project partners is the Silent World Foundation. Now, the Silent World Foundation have been supporting the Maritime Archaeology Project with the Australian National Maritime Museum for a number of years. They are our major sponsor. Uh, they fund many of our projects around Australia and overseas. And for the last two years, they've been involved in the hunt for HMB Endeavour with RIMAP and the Australian National Maritime Museum. This gives you an idea, this image, first image gives you an idea of what conditions are like in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, usually when I give a presentation of, of uh, shipwreck work, I try and show calm seas, I try and show sharks, because everyone likes sharks. I try and show pictures of coral, uh, I, I, I try and show pictures of, of beautiful fish and beautiful environments and so on and so on. Um, this is Newport, Rhode Island. And Newport, Rhode Island... I'll, again, I'll tell you a little bit more about this, but Newport, Rhode Island is a very, very, very busy port. Uh, we think of it as Newport, Rhode Island as the home of America's Cup, or I should say the ex-home of the America's Cup. Apologies for any Americans in the audience. But um, that's what it is. Um, it's a very vibrant port. Uh, many hundreds of vessel movements each year go through the port, and it's got a very long history of maritime history, very long maritime history, 500 years of European maritime history in Newport. There's also a whopping great big American naval base just a couple of kilometres up the road from where we're working. They get like 50 major ocean liners a year going through Newport, Rhode Island. So it's a very busy port. And because of that, the environment, the marine environment there is very turbid. Um, there's a lot of algae in the water. Uh, it actually does clear up a little bit in winter. But visibility is around about, on a good day, maybe about a metre, a metre and a half. On a bad day, the best visibility is actually inside your face mask. Okay, so this is actually a, not a not a too bad sort of day. This is about maybe about 60 to 80 centimeters that we have here, and James will tell you some of the techniques that we've been using to try and overcome the problems with visibility. And by the way, I do rabbit on, so if people if I do bore you or anything, just please drop me a line or do. Okay. So. Oops, wrong one, sorry. First problem. <laughs> I might try the old school. Major. Arrow key. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. A little bit about maritime archaeology. I apologise for people that I don't look like Indiana Jones or anyone like Indiana Jones. So maritime archaeology has been defined as the study of underwater cultural heritage and related land-based sites. Both James and I are maritime archaeologists and we work for the National Maritime Museum in Australia. Um, we do pro projects and programs and all sorts of interesting stuff all around the world as well as in Australia. And in fact, we've just come back from a project on the Great Barrier Reef uh, where we're looking for a mysterious Spanish shipwreck dating from the early 1900s, 
1820s or so. We do all sorts of stuff. Um, we look at uh, maritime-related sites, such as shipwrecks, survivor camps, uh, salvage sites, maritime memorial sites. We look at a thing like maritime infrastructure, so we study harbours, we study uh, the remains of ports, we study shipping channels, we look at trade routes, we look at what material was coming into Australia and what material was going out of Australia in the 19th and 20th century. These are all sort of areas where maritime archaeologists get engaged. And we use all the basic techniques that you think about as an archaeologist, except for the pith helmet and the whip. We don't carry those. So we do research, uh, we do site assessments, we do field work, and we do post-excavation research and so on, uh, conservation interpretation and all that sort of stuff. This image is actually of a place I used to work. This is Hyde Park Barracks in Sydney, and this is um, one of our first excavations on the site in the early 1970s. I told you I was old. So um, this is actually some of the work below, beneath the floor deposits in Hyde Park Barracks. And maritime archaeologists use exactly the same techniques as land archaeologists, except we get wet occasionally. National Maritime Museum's been around. It's one of the more recent national institutions in Australia. And for reasons that make quite sense, you know, quite a sensible reason really, they decided to base the National Maritime Museum in Sydney with a coast rather than putting us in Canberra where there's no coast. So they actually established us at Piermont um, in Sydney. And this white building on the, on the right is actually our home uh, in Sydney. Okay, now on to the endeavour. It seems a logical thing for an Australian National Maritime Museum to get involved in the hunt for HMB Endeavour. Now, we first heard about HMB Endeavour, well, we've always known about HMB Endeavour, but we first heard about the possibility that HMB Endeavour was still around as a shipwreck way back in 1998. And that was due to the work of a person by the name of Dr Cathia Bass. Dr Cathia Bass, who was the director, the CEO, if you like, of an organisation called the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project. And Cathy was involved working with amateur divers, avocational divers, in assessing shipwreck sites in the state of Rhode Island. And she had many, many thousands of shipwrecks to, to investigate. Now, one of the areas that Cathy was really passionate about, and she's a very passionate person, was the vessels associated with the American Revolutionary War, the Amer as we call it, the American War of Independence, and the vessels sunk in Newport and in Rhode Island associated with, those with that whole Revolutionary War story. Very, very passionate about it. It's a huge thing in the United States, the Revolutionary War, and it's a huge thing in Newport, Rhode Island. The Australian National Maritime Museum and the Silent Will Foundation were interested in her story because of the very, very, very strong possibility that one of the vessels sunk during the Newport, during the Revolutionary War in the United States in Newport was this vessel, HMB Endeavour. Now, I won't bore you about it, uh, about the story of HMB Endeavour. We all know it fairly well. Um, built as the Earl of Pembroke as a collier, went on, was purchased by the Royal Navy, Navy renamed Endeavour, did a number of, did a single voyage with Cook uh, into the Pacific, went up the east coast of Australia, circumnavigated New Zealand, and so on. And then went on uh, to do some service in the Falkland Islands before being sold out of the Royal Navy and being renamed the Lord Sandwich. 
in that one of those weird and wonderful quirks of 18th century maritime history, the uh, Lord Sandwich was eventually chartered, bought, it's up to conjecture what it actually is, chartered, bought back into the Royal Navy and was used to carry Hessian troops, German mercenaries, from England to what later became known as the United States of America during the American Revolutionary War. And as the Lord Sandwich, it ended up in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, Newport, to give you some idea how significant Newport was, Newport was the third largest port in what became known as the USA, the third largest port in 18th century America. So it was a massive port, huge whaling fleet, huge number of uh, slavers going out of Newport, very, very large fleet, very strategically important, beautiful harbour, very safe harbour, very well defended harbour. And so the British came into Newport and they kept a number of vessels there. At the time that the, um, in 1778 when the Endeavour was sunk, there was 80 British vessels in Newport Harbour. Um, transports, warships, uh, a number of small cutters, schooners, large warships, frigates, all packed into Newport um, Harbour. Newport, Rhode Island, um, on the get my coasts right now on the east coast of Australia, uh, east coast of Australia on the east coast of America. Um, beautiful harbour, very strategically important during the American Revolutionary War, and of course we have RIMAP with the work of the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project, analysing, surveying, looking for shipwrecks associated with the story of Newport, and in particular the early transports. Sure, sure, okay. Okay, there's Providence. Newport's right there. So this is a beautiful harbour, Narragansett Bay. So, and then you go around the corner slightly of uh, Narragansett Bay and Newport's actually harbour is actually just in here. Um, one of the things about the, the American Revolutionary War is that the French were involved and involved quite heavily. And we always think about this American-British thing, but in fact the French were heavily involved in the American Revolutionary War, of course. Um, they saw it as strategically important. They saw that the Americans were actually whipping um, the British's bottoms um, during the American Revolutionary War and they decided to, to actually side with the, with the actual... Um, if I can use the word rebels, uh, in Newport and around the east coast of America. By doing so, um, what they did is actually sent out a very large fleet of 13 first-rate, that means large gunships, um, battleships, um, around about 70 to 120 guns each. And this fleet, under the name of, under the command of Admiral Etang, went to, to Newport, Rhode Island, and to tried to wrest the, uh, to, to capture the town from the British that were holding it, the British garrison that were holding it. At the very same time, an American army attacked Newport from the north. Newport's actually an island. They went over the, the, the passage onto the island and they attacked Newport from the, no, from the north. So it's a pincer movement. The French were coming into Narragansett Bay, the Americans were attacking from the north and the garrison, the British garrison and their Hessian troops in Newport, around about 6,500 soldiers, they realised that they were in 
for a severe attack. They realised that if they weren't capable, if they couldn't do it, if they couldn't actually get rid of this uh, American attack, this, this French attack coming in, that they were in serious trouble. Um, so what they did is they, there's a slight panic going on in the town. I mean, the, the Americans are advancing from the north, around about 20,000 Americans. This huge fleet coming in, um, nothing capable in Newport of actually defeating the French fleet at the time. So um, they decided to barricade Newport. They decided to actually stop the, the French fleet getting in. And to do so, they sank a number of vessels. They deliberately sank them. They scuttled them. They scuttled somewhere between 30 and 40 um, ships, transports, frigates and so on to barricade the fort, to barricade the port and to stop the French coming in too close, to stop them bombarding the town and bombarding the, fort the uh, fortifications around the town. So here, here we have the French fleet coming in. Uh, this is Newport over here. They're coming through the, the narrow entrance of Narragansett and the actual... Uh, British, in the meantime, this is all happening in August 1778, was busily scuttling their fleet at the very entrances to Newport Harbour to prevent the Americans from coming in too close. This is a, a, a chart produced in August 1778 by, an by a British captain called uh, Captain uh, Gage, sorry, Fage, and this is known as the Fage Chart. And it shows Newport in 1778, the town of Newport. This is Goat Island here. There's a fortification up here called North Battery. Another fortification there, Goat Island Battery. And another battery on uh, where Fort Adams is today on Breton Point. There's also a small battery out here on Rose Island. Now, what the British did was they sank a whole pile of transports and frigates here and here and across here to prevent the French fleet sailing around the corner and getting into Newport and bombarding the town. Meanwhile, the Americans are advancing across here, and so there's batteries, internal batteries, land-based fortifications up here as well. The French and the Americans would have won. They would have actually easily captured Newport. But one of those things happened, and in August 1778, a gale, a hurricane, blew up the coast, and a massive storm blew up the coast, and the French fleet, um, at the very same time, a large fleet of British vessels were coming around from New York, and the American fleet, uh, sorry, the French fleet and the British fleet engaged off the, off the coast of Newport, but the storm came up, both uh, fleets spread, um, got dissipated by the storm, the Americans on land realised that without the support of the French allies, they weren't able to capture Newport and so the Americans pulled back and so the siege of Newport in 1778 was called off. A few months, a few weeks later in uh, uh, September 1778, the British government started to raise some of these vessels here, um, the ones which are younger, the ones that they could repurpose, the ones that they could uh, use again, but they left 13 transports, the older vessels, um, down in the depths of Newport Harbour. Cathy Abbas and, and Rymap identified the names of some of those vessels here. We've got a list of, of transports, and one of them was called the Lord Sandwich, this one here. Very same time, one of those serendipitous events occurred in maritime history, very same time that Cathy Abbas was researching this, 
two Australian historians, uh, Des Liddy and a man by the name of Connell from Sydney, were doing work on the history of Endeavour. And they came across this reference. And this, sorry, I'll go back. And this reference here. Oops, give it right a minute. This reference here basically says, uh, Lord Sandwich X Endeavour. And they used this information. They actually looked at the tonnage. They looked at the owners and all that sort of information here. We've got Lord Sandwich, London Transport, um, the owner, Mathers, built in Whitby, the tonnage and all that sort of stuff. And they realised, in fact, that the vessel called Lord Sandwich, wrecked in Newport, Rhode Island, was in fact HMB Endeavour. Come 1999, we heard this. Cathy uh, Abbas published this in a in a journal called The Great Circle, and this information got out, and then we got approached by Cathy Abbas to actually help her look for HMB Endeavour in Newport. So we've been involved in looking for HMB in Newport since 1999. Uh, so here we have some images uh, of us in the early days. A uh, person on the right, on the on your left over here, is uh, Sue Bassett, one of the one of our maritime conservators. And we have some excavation images uh, showing in that image. If you please note, my hair colour hasn't changed. Now, Newport, it's a very tiny space that we're looking in. It's around about two nautical miles. Um, legislation in the United States is slightly different to what we have in Australia. In Australia, we have the, what's called the Historic Shipwrecks Act and we have a number of Heritage Acts and we also have a thing called the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act and they all have the capability of protecting historic shipwrecks. In America, things are slightly different and they have local legislation, that is state legislation, and they also have a sort of a general encompassing historic shipwreck legislation. But one of the things they have also in the United States that we don't have here is salvage law. And in order to protect the wrecks in Newport, once they realised that one of them was Endeavour, um, the state of Rhode Island did what's called arresting the wreck. They actually took it to salvage court. They took it to a salvage court and they arrested all the wrecks in Newport um, to actually get round any chance that salvage divers or somebody else might come in and actually damage those sites. So slightly different legislation, but the wrecks in Newport Harbour, in those, within that two square miles, are protected not only under state legislation, but also under American salvage law. So there's a number of hoops and things we have to jump through to actually do any work in Newport. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the visibility in Newport's very poor. Uh, it's a very busy harbour. It's a very flat bottom, a lot of silt and so on. And so we, rather than just throw divers in the water and look for the signs of a shipwreck, um, as you can imagine, after 200 years, those signs aren't huge. They're not huge things sitting on the seabed. They're like a scattering of timbers or a pile of ballast on the seabed rather than an intact ship. Um, we use a number of techniques. We use metal detectors, underwater metal detectors. We use a thing called a magnetometer, which detects changes in the Earth's magnetic field. And we use this device here, which is side scan sonar. This device here. And basically, it sends out sonar beams, basically a sound wave that goes through the water and detects anything rising above the seabed. And so we use that technique to actually find shipwrecks poking up out of the silt and sediment. And then we throw in divers to have a look 
um, at those shipwrecks to see if there's actually any sign of a shipwreck on the bottom and if that shipwreck's dating from the 18th century and if that shipwreck is actually in Endeavour. Lots of ifs. One of the problems we have in Newport, Rhode Island is that there are a number of shipwrecks on the seabed. There's modern shipwrecks dating from the early 20th century and there's old shipwrecks dating from the 17th century. And the, the problem that we have as archaeologists is identifying which one may be Endeavour. Now, we can do lots of measuring, we can do lots of plotting, we can do lots of surveying, but probably the only true way of finding if a site is Endeavour is actually by digging a hole into it, to actually get down into the seabed, to dig up, to actually examine the sediments, examine the material culture, get all the scantlings, that's the measurements of timbers and so on on the seabed, to find out and compare that information to what we know about Endeavour, the archival information associated with Endeavour. So here we have a, a limited excavation happening. There's, so we located 13 vessels um, in the last 15, 20 years. We've located 15, uh, 13 vessels um, in Newport Harbour. And here we have some divers actually excavating. This one here is on a thing called the barge site. Great names. It's actually called Gamma, but that doesn't mean anything to anyone. This is known as the barge site. And this one is known as the hospital cannon site uh, because of their location in Newport Harbour. Uh, give you an idea of what the stuff is you encounter in Newport Harbour. These are two electrical cables running across the wreck uh, on the hospital cannon site, and they're live cables. They're actually powering the lighthouses in Newport Harbour. So you have to work around them very carefully. Um, the idea is you send volunteers in first, <laughs> and you get them to gently touch it. So uh, this is me after I've sent the volunteers in. So I'm quite happy with that one there being dead. There's not, nothing in that one. And believe it or not, that's a part of a shipwreck. That's the frame or the ribs, if you like, of a shipwreck dating from the 18th century. So don't expect to see a full galleon or a full ship sitting on the seabed. Things are slightly different. So how do we tell amongst all the murk of Newport that what we found is actually Endeavour? So there's a couple of things going in our favour. As you can imagine, Endeavour's a very well-known ship. There's lots of publications, there's lots of documentation, there's lots of stuff telling us about how Endeavour was built. And so we have some fantastic drawings and plans uh, of Endeavour, dating from 1768, dating from the very first voyages out to Australia. Now, one of these plans actually exists in Australia. Do you have it in your, on display? You've got two. So one of them is actually from the Australian Australasian Pioneers Club in Sydney, and it shows how Endeavour was built for the voyage. It's dating from 1768, uh, and it shows actually how Endeavour was built, how it was repurposed, how it was changed for its voyage out to Australia and the Pacific. We also have other material. This material here is actually um, ballast stone, which was recovered from the stranding site of HNB Endeavour when it whacked into the Great Barrier Reef in 1770. And this material is actually held in the collection of the Australian National Maritime Museum. Some of it's on display at the National Library here. And this stuff is very unique. Um, the actual stones, it just looks like rocks, doesn't it, really? But when you give it to a geologist, they get very excited. We know that from the voyage accounts of Endeavour that um, Cook and his crew picked up stone as they travelled through the Pacific. And we can actually identify 
the locations where this stone comes from through geological uh, analysis. So this one here is actually New Zealand stone. We know that. Um, and the other one's from, I think it's from Tahiti. So these two bits of stone, we actually know where they're, where they're from. And this is the sort of material that we're looking for on the seabed. Believe it or not, we, un we know, we understand that, uh, that the vessel's got, undergone a number of changes, has been modified. But what we're hoping to find is these glimpses, these uh, little, the possibilities that this sort of material may be left on the seafloor, that we may find a tantalising clue to what we're looking at is actually HMB Endeavour. We also have these beautiful drawings. This is actually one taken from Parkin's book. It's not, a, it's not an original drawing, but it gives you an idea of the information which is available. And as archaeologists, we get very excited about what's called mouldings and sidings. They're basically scantlings. They're basically the size of timbers. Now, wooden shipwrecks are amazing things. Wooden ships are amazing things. They're built by a bunch of guys, some women, a bunch of guys with adzes, with axes, with chisels. And they're actually chopping away at timber. They're actually making a thing, but they're making it out of a live product. And they're actually, we know the size and the shape and the nature of these timbers. We know actually how big they were. We know the gap between each one, what's called the space. We know they're 12 inches across. We know they're 14 inches deep. We know the space, I can't remember now, I think it's eight inches between each frame. We know all that about Endeavour. We know the timber it was built out of. We know the timber that the Endeavour was built out of was British white oak. That's the frames of the vessel. We know the keel along here was built out of English elm. We know the deck was built out of pine. Now, this sort of seems, you know, sort of, sort of information that you're probably aware of, but many of the vessels that we're examining, many of the vessels that were wrecked in Newport are built out of American timbers. And we can differentiate between the two. We can differentiate between American timbers and British timbers. Not only that, there is a number of studies now, particularly in, in England, and they can actually tell the region where the white oak comes from. They can tell you whether it comes from the east coast or the west coast of England. Now, we do know that from the records, from the archival records, that the timber used to build Endeavour came from within about 15 miles of Whitby. So that's very, very particular. And we've, there's now enough information on timber analysis to actually tell us where those timbers are coming from. And so we go to the seabed and we actually take timber samples and we send them off to people who actually make this their passion. And luckily for us in Australia, there's one in Melbourne. And Hugo Ehrlich is his name. And Hugo can probably tell you the name of the person who cut the tree down. He is that good. And so we send our stuff. We bombard Hugo with this stuff every year we come back from excavating and digging up material and taking timber samples. Conscious of the time, sorry. So that's the sort of information that we use to figure out if a Rex endeavour or not. It's on to James. Thank you. All right. Hi, everybody. Um, so Kieran's been around for a long time. Uh, I have too, for being honest. Maybe not as long as Kieran, but I've certainly been in, within maritime archaeology for about 20 years now, so I've been doing this for a while. But my association with the Maritime Museum is actually only about four years old. Um, I started in 2015, and the timing of my starting on the job could not have been better because 
Kieran mentioned there were 13 wrecks that the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project were looking at. Well, imagine our good fortune that as I began my job at the museum, an archival document is found by a person named Knowles. And Knowles was the head of the transports that were in Newport during the war. And he was the guy who was responsible for scuttling all of these ships. And in this document, Knowles was kind enough, and as archaeologists, we love things like this because they so rarely turn up. He was kind enough to say where the ships were scuttled in Newport Harbor. And so uh, our, our boss, Kieran Amon's boss, Dr. Nigel Erskine at the museum, um, he was doing some archival research. He ran across this document uh, at the PRO in London, and it happened to say that between Goat Island which, uh, if I've got my pointer here, um, this map is on its side, so I'll have to excuse that. But Goat Island is here. And the North Battery, which is right here, there were five transports that were scuttled. And he lists the names of the five. There was the Earl of Orford, the Yowarts, the Peggy, the Mayflower, and the Lord Sandwich. Now, we knew the Lord Sandwich was the new name of the former endeavor. So this completely changed the entire equation. Because whereas you are dealing with 13 wreck sites in a fairly large geographic area within the harbor, you now had limited it down to a very specific location. And that was incredibly helpful for us. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background into these five vessels because their sizes and some of their attributes are important in trying to whittle down which wreck might be the Lord Sandwich X Endeavor. So Lord Sandwich, uh, we all know quite a bit about that vessel. Uh, X Endeavor, 368 tons, built at Whitby, 1764. Kieran's already gone into some of the more specific attributes of that ship, the fact it was built of white oak, uh, elm was used in its keel and in post construction, a lot of other things. The Earl of Orford was 231 tons, but it was built in Maryland. So it was American built, which meant it would have used American woods in its construction, very likely. It would be very, very unusual for you to find an American colonial built vessel that's using English wood, simply because you would have had to have shipped it all the way to North America. And why do that when you had vast quantities of natural timber that were perfectly suitable for shipbuilding? Um, now, the thing about the Earl of Orford is quite interesting, is that it's listed in Lloyd's Register. And all the other ships of the five that were scuttled are also listed. But what you find in looking at that registry is that in 1779, they disappear from the register. And that's because they had been sunk and they were struck from the register. Okay? But the Earl of Orford, interestingly enough, continues through to 1781. Now, we do know from the Knowles report that a number of these vessels were refloated. Um, they, they were assessed. They said, hey, we like that ship. We like that ship. The owner of that ship is really, really upset that you sank it, so could we get that back up? Uh, so there are a number of reasons why they refloated these ships, but there were several that were refloated. And there is a belief, we think, that the Earl of Orford was one of the ones that was refloated. And as we move along, this will prove critical. Uh, we have the Yowart. That's 272 tons, built at Whitehaven, England. So it's English built, 
roughly around the same time as Endeavour, uh, but smaller um, by nearly 100 tons. So that's a significant difference when you're looking at hull construction and timber dimensions. We have the Mayflower. Now, the Mayflower is the smallest of the group. Uh, Lord Sandwich is the biggest. Mayflower is the smallest, uh, 197 tons. It's a snow, so it's a two-masted vessel, very similar to what we have here. Um, and interestingly, it's armed as well. Uh, the other transports aren't listed as being armed. However, they may have been. Um, and then we have the Peggy. Now, the Peggy proved an interesting conundrum for us because there were three vessels with that name that were used as transports during the American Revolution. Peggy was a very common name. You find hundreds of vessels by this name during this period. Um, and we had the three different ones that we had. We had one of 234 tons that was built in North America, so it's American built. We have one of 209 tons. And the really real pain for us was the one that was of 362 tons built in England because it's getting very, very close to the size of Endeavour. And that was a bit of an irritant for us. Uh, I am happy to announce, though, that when we got back from our most recent field season, um, I started looking at Lloyd's Register, uh, sort of reviewing the archival sources. And I found that that Peggy, the biggest one, actually continued in Lloyd's Register until 1806. And it underwent repairs during that period. You see these different notations of it being repaired and modifications being made. So the upshot to this is that there is no possible way that that vessel would have been sunk at Newport and remained there. It could have been scuttled and refloated, or the likelihood is that it was never scuttled to begin with and that the Peggy that we're dealing with is one of these two significantly smaller vessels. So from an archaeological standpoint, that is good news because we are now dealing with a vessel that probably has smaller construction, smaller timbers. So if we find big timbers, we can go, eh, it's probably not that ship, most likely that one. Now, uh, Kieran mentioned that we use a number of different search techniques, what we call remote sensing. Uh, we use magnetometers, we use side-scan sonar. We also use a tool called multi-beam, uh, multi-beam echo sounder. And what it does is it provides a three-dimensional image of the seabed. And we're very lucky in that the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States has done a lot of comprehensive bathymetric mapping of United States ports, Newport not being an exception. So uh, imagine our good luck, and it certainly helped in the search, when we found that NOAA had these uh, 3D bathymetric maps of Newport Harbor. So this very colorful bit that you're looking here is, the, uh, is one of these bathymetric maps. And it turns out that within that area where we had five vessels scuttled, there were four very suspicious-looking acoustic anomalies. Uh, now, when I say a suspicious acoustic anomaly, I'm talking about what we have on the right-hand side image. Uh, you'll notice that this seabed is largely featureless. It's very flat. It's silt. A lot of mussel shell, a lot of silt. That's pretty much what you see. Don't worry, you'll see more of that shortly. Um, but in amongst all of that, you do get things that pop up off the bottom. And so, for example, we have this and this and this and to a lesser extent, this. Now, when you see things like that and you're an archaeologist, 
or I don't know, a marine surveyor, you get very excited because that means that there may be a shipwreck there and you should go look at that. Um, it turns out that there were four anomalies of this type and it just so happened when you look at the overall map of the harbor and the area, what we call the limited study area, which is bounded by this box, there was one, two, three, bit of a gap here, and four. Right in the locations where Knowles put the five transports that were sunk. Interestingly, these three seem to be fairly evenly spaced. Whereas you have this other one up here kind of on its own, and it seems like if you plonked another one roughly midway between the two, you would have five very evenly spaced shipwrecks. It is probably no surprise that Earl of Orford was supposedly refloated. So one of the theories that we're operating on is that this is where Earl of Orford was, but it was removed and it was refloated. So that leaves four very interesting acoustic anomalies. These were investigated, and sure enough, there were four 18th century shipwreck sites. So it was exactly what was expected based on the archival research. Um, now, the sites we're dealing with, and all of these site plans, these are maps of the wreck site as they appear on the seabed, these are all scaled to the exact same size. So you have a fairly small one here. You have this one here and this one here, which are quite large, and I'll get into those in a moment. And then you have another one here, which is a bit smaller. Um, one site, that being this one, up at the far north end, was entirely too small. So it could be ruled out immediately as being Endeavor. Because, uh, again, Endeavor is the largest of the five. Um, and so that left three of interest. And then we have our missing one. Now, a little bit about this little guy before I go any further. Um, you'll notice it's quite close to this wreck site here. Turns out this wreck site is the one I will be talking about at length. Um, when I started on the project two years ago, uh, I was tasked with actually looking at this wreck site. Um, the jury is still out, but we're about 99.9% .9 certain that this is not a shipwreck site. Uh, we've got natural geology that's eroding out of the silt in this area. There's a lot of rock that's buried. And what you find is when you get changes in currents and you get changes in seabed topography, areas erode out. So we have that. And because that stone has eroded out, it's become a trap for artifacts. So things that have been deposited, either thrown overboard or getting deposited from elsewhere. And this wreck site is really only about 100 feet away. So it's really close, about 30 meters. Um, we suspect that some of the material that we found here may have actually originated from this shipwreck site. But we haven't found any timber. There's nothing there that would really indicate to us that we have a wreck site. So our interest really then is on this site, this site, and this site. And these are close-ups of the three. Now, this one here is a stone ballast pile, um, but it's small relative to the other ones. And that gives us a fairly good indication that it probably wouldn't be the Endeavor because it's not big enough. That leaves these two. And they're roughly the same size. Uh, the one that makes this one interesting is that you have cannons on it, uh, and they are 18th century cannons. And we also had timber exposed, which is very useful because that's the kind of information we're interested in. Uh, this one had a little bit of timber, 
uh, and it also had iron kentledge or ballast blocks. But what's, and although we know Endeavor actually had iron ballast blocks, um, we know that that ballast was put low down in the hold. What we've got here is stone ballast, and this iron ballast appears to be sitting on top of it. So the theory that we're operating on at the moment is that this vessel probably had stone ballast, and some iron ballast may have been added to it later as a means of sort of weighing it down a bit. Um, as you removed cargo and guns and people and all these other things, you had to compensate for that. So ballast had to go into the ship's hold to compensate for that removal of weight. Uh, so long story short, of the three, this one was looking the most promising. And so this past year, this is the one we had a look at. Um, now, there's some really, really good aspects to this wreck site that make it a good contender. Uh, one is the overall length of the visible site. Now, I have to point out that not all of the wreck is uncovered. You've only got a very small percentage visible. Um, and that overall length is about 70 feet. Now, that correlates fairly well to Endeavor, which was around 90 feet length overall. Uh, and taking into account that parts of it might be buried up at the ends, and believe me, there is plenty of silt around here, um, that was a very good indicator. Uh, and in looking at the timber dimensions, just a very, very cursory look, it was evident that these are large timbers. This is a large ship. It's very well built, uh, and it's robust. And that is what we would expect of a Whitby Collier. Um, they were built like a box. Uh, they were actually designed to sit on the seabed when the tide went out. So the tide would go completely out, and the thing would be sitting on the bottom. Uh, and they were built to take that sort of stress on the hull. So we, we clearly have that. And a lot of these timbers also appear to be what we call flat floored. Um, whereas you have a curve, oftentimes of the notion going vessel that's built for speed, we have very flat timbers, so a bottom that's box-shaped. And that also was very promising. And finally, we had cannon. Now, there's no real documentary evidence that we found at this point that would indicate that Lord Sandwich had cannon on it when it was scuttled. But we do know that when Endeavour ran aground on Endeavour Reef in 1770, there were 10 guns on the ship. They threw six overboard. That leaves four. And interestingly enough, in analyzing these guns, taking their measurements, they approximate almost exactly the guns that would have been carried by Endeavour. Uh, in fact, when you look at some of the ones that were recovered in the 1960s, they're almost identical. So that was a very, very good indicator as well. Now, <laughs> now we get to the fun part. So, yeah, diving in Newport is not, um, not diving in the Coral Sea, let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> as, as Kieran mentioned, this proved a bit of a challenge because when you're dealing with a wreck site where you've only got an average of about a meter's visibility, it's very hard to see the site in its entirety. And that's one of the things we really wanted to do. We want to see the whole thing. You're seeing very small snippets of it at a time. And you can measure it, you can map it, and we did all of that. But there's a new tool that, uh, well, I say new, it's probably about a decade old now. Um, there's, a, there's a tool that's being used more and more in maritime archaeology called 3D photogrammetry. And in a nutshell, what that is, is you go down with a digital camera, with an underwater housing, and you take hundreds, thousands, of photographs. 
of a rec site, an object, whatever it happens to be. And you take it from as many different perspectives as you can. You go all the way around the object and the site and you get as many pictures as you can. And there are software programs. You can take these images, you can import them in, and it will go through a series of iterations and it will stitch the images together. And it will create a 3D model. And depending on whether you have any references in there to give you measurement, they can be extremely accurate models. Um, this had never been done on any of these sites prior to this past year. And it's something that we've been working with for the past couple years and we thought this would be fun because the idea was if we can get good 3D models and we can stitch enough images together, it will start to give us a bigger picture of what we're looking at. It will give us that clear visibility that doesn't exist. Um, so we're using 12 me megapixel digital still cameras, so big images, lots of detail, um, underwater housings, uh, we preset the cameras to shoot a photo every two seconds. Reason for that is it's much easier to just hold the camera in position and let it take photos than to go click, click, you know, these get sore after a while, especially if you're doing this for an hour. Um, we use still imagery because they generate much higher resolution and much more detailed imagery uh, as opposed to video. And on average, in an hour-long dive, because most of the dives we did, sites in about 20, 21 meters, we do about an hour dive, we would generate between five and 600 images. So quite a lot there. And good thing, <laughs> because some of them were unusable because of the conditions we're dealing with. Now, Kieran pointed out this image. Um, this is a good day. <laughs> this is a bad day. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, I, we actually did this dive. I got down to the seabed. I try, I turned the lights on and there was so much backscatter from the particulate in the water, I couldn't even take photos. So we just said, nope, we're done. Forget it. Uh, let's try later on. Um, I could also tell you that we found out later a yacht went by and we think it may have dumped its tanks as it went by. <laughs> so there's that too. <laughs> I don't tell you about those occupational hazards when you do maritime archaeology classes, do they? Um, one thing I do want to point out really quickly, too, because of the low visibility and because the seabed is relatively featureless, except around things like cannons and things that stick up above the, the bottom, we used what are called targets. Uh, that's this thing. And we would just put them down at random. And what they are is you print them out. Each one has a unique geometric pattern. And the camera will recognize it. it. It will pick it up. And when you import the imagery into the software program, the software program will recognize it as well. And it will use it as a reference point to try to stitch the images together. So it's quite useful in that regard. Ugh. Okay, let's move on. Um, this is a, a screenshot. And what this shows is one of the cannons that is sticking up uh, from the bottom. And all the blue rectangles are images that were taken by the camera. Um, so you can actually trace your survey. It'll, it'll show where the camera was when each photograph was taken. And it's very useful because you can use that later to go, oh, well, I missed this area around here. I need to go back and get some more imagery. Um, so it was incredibly useful in that regard. And Good luck for us. Now, these are screen captures of actual 3D models. 
in the program, we can manipulate these. And you can see the imagery in three dimensions, which is quite nice. But I'm just going to show you some screen captures of what we had. Uh, that cannon that you saw earlier on, this is it here. So there's the cannon. You can see the targets. This is actually one of our baseline tapes running up the middle of the rec site. Um, so that level of detail is there. And you can zoom into these things. And in some of the imagery, you can actually read the numbers on the tape. So not bad. Um, and you can see that uh, right here, they're very hard to see. And this is one of the defining features of this wreck, is that the hull timbers don't stick up very high from the seabed. Very minimal relief. You're probably talking that much in most cases. So they don't show up very well, and that makes things a bit challenging. But here we've got a hull a frame. Here's another frame. And then we've got the cannon out here. That's in the midships area. Uh, these are the three most exposed frames or ribs on the ship. And again, you can see they don't stick up very high. And unfortunately for us, one of the things about this program is it loves relief. It loves something that's very clearly exposed and has a lot of different edges that you can photograph. So we don't really have that advantage, which makes things a bit tricky. Um, this is moving up towards one end of the wreck. Uh, so again, here's that baseline tape you saw earlier. This is a bit of hull planking, just the top of the plank sticking out. Uh, this is a, a frame over here, one of the ribs. This is a collapsed, what we call a futtock. So this is a, a frame that's higher up in the ship that's fallen down and is laying flat. And uh, <laughs> this is our friend, the electric cable. <laughs> They're all over the place. I, yeah, we tried to stay clear of those. Um, supposedly, they aren't, some of them aren't live anymore, but I'm not going to test the theory. Uh, again, volunteers, very useful. And uh, moving into artifacts, there were some, not a lot, but the ones that we did have were fairly prominent. Uh, so we had two cannons uh, in one area. We had a third that I showed you earlier, and then we had a fourth down at the uh, one end of the wreck site, the south end. Um, this is one of them here. This is the breach of a second that's going that way. Um, so you can see they're very heavily concreted. They have a lot of marine growth on them and what we call concretion, which is sort of conglomerated sediment and rock and shell and that sort of thing. Um, and then this is a lead scupper. So uh, originally on the ship, this was designed, uh, water would come down the deck and it was a sluice that would allow water to go overboard. Um, it's about this big. So very nice size, uh, indicative of a larger ship. Uh, so a very good thing. And it's got a couple starfish living in it. So we even actually got the starfish in the 3D model. So what we're in the process of doing right now is trying to make a composite. Now, at first blush, this would seem fairly easy, except, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of flat, featureless seabed. It's silt and mussels, and it doesn't matter how many targets you put down. We are finding that the software is having a hard time <laughs> with this because it all looks the same. And uh, so we're, we're kind of doing this piecemeal, trying to develop these different areas. But this is the original site plan, give you an indication. So again, ignore the fact there are five cannons. There are actually only four on the site. Uh, this was a mapping error. Um, but this is showing where these things are. Uh, so these are those guns there. This is uh, that cannon breach here. These are those frames. The uh, other gun that's down here at the south end. And then we've got this material up here. So what we're trying to do ultimately is to connect all of this together into one composite 3D image. It's very slow going. 
but we're making progress. So I'm happy with that uh, so far. Now, one of the other things that we did while we were there, we did standard site recording. So we got the tapes out, we got the rulers out, we did all of that. Uh, but one of the things that I think I really want to point out to you in this image is, again, visibility, not good. Uh, this is a Canon. This is that Canon that was in that earlier 3D model. You can't tell. <laughs> he probably can't even tell, uh, quite frankly. So, yeah, it made it very challenging. Uh, and it's the best when you can't see this guy. There's actually somebody over there holding the other end of that tape. And you're trying to do signals to him, and he's like... <laughs> and then he finally swims over and goes... You know, so this is the kind of thing <laughs> that we have to deal with uh, pretty much every day in Newport during the summer. One of the things that we really tried to focus on, though, uh, and it's really particularly relevant to, uh, relevant to the vessel we know as Endeavor, because as Kieran pointed out earlier, Endeavor had a life after Cook. It went to the Falklands. It was a commercial vessel. It was used as a transport. It was even used as a prison ship in Newport. So there, is this, there are these whole series of episodes that happened in the vessel's life after the Cook voyage. And what that means, archaeologically, is that there's a very good chance you're dealing with artifacts that are not associated with Cook or that initial Endeavor voyage at all. They're from all these later phases. So for our purposes in trying to actually figure out whether this is the right wreck, we have to go back to the hull. The hull is the one artifact, and thankfully the biggest, that will tell us the most. So we spent a lot of time trying to get information, uh, measurements on the hull timbers, sampling them, trying to get the information that we can correlate to the archival record to give us the answers we hope we can get. Um, this is that collapsed buttock I showed you in that earlier uh, 3D image, you'll notice um, where the timbers are buried, they're very well preserved. Immaculate, actually. Um, in some instances, we could see tool marks still on the timbers. So they're very well preserved where they're buried because the, ox the environment is deoxygenated. So you don't have marine organisms feeding on that timber. It's just kind of in a state of stasis. Uh, but you'll notice in this image here, uh, where the timbers are exposed, they very quickly get nibbled at by teredo worms, gribble, fish, lobsters, you name it. It's like, yeah, smorgasbord, I'm going to eat that. Uh, marine organisms are not very discerning, we find, so that's a problem uh, we have to deal with. And so we had a few different timbers that we looked at. Uh, we had, uh, this is actually a stanchion, so this is a vertical post. So if you can imagine like this thing here, uh, sort of square, about that big, uh, and it would have supported one of the, the deck beams on the ship. Uh, we have frames of the ribs, and we have remnants of fasteners. So here we have what's called a trunnel. Um, that's a wooden dowel, basically, that was used to fasten the timbers together. And you find that in earlier ship construction, trunnels are very common. As you move out of the 18th century and into the 19th and 20th centuries, you find iron, copper, copper alloy. The trunnels kind of disappear. So the fact that we have those means early ship. Uh, the construction is exactly what we would hope. So one of the things that we did, we got the measurements, but we also wanted to do some timber sampling. Uh, Karen mentioned we know what Endeavor was built from. And we may even know right down to the forest where that timber was hewn from. So, that's critical. So we made a point to get in there and get 
timber samples on as many timbers as we could. Uh, this map here shows areas where we sampled uh, timbers. We selected a range of different timbers. Um, and so what you see here is Kieran. Uh, he's actually knocking with a hammer and chisel. He's taking wood samples out of the timber. Um, it is a bit of a destructive process, but you have to do it. Uh, there's no other way to scientifically analyze the wood except to get a piece of it out that a wood species expert can look at. Uh, bonus for us, uh, this is actually Rear Admiral Mike Noonan. He's the Australian Chief of Navy. And he came out, he happened to be in Newport at the time, and found out we were working and uh, asked if he would come dive with us. And he used to be an ex, uh, he's a Navy diver uh, before he moved up the chain. And uh, so he came out and actually helped us uh, sample timbers. So that was great. Really good to have him along. Uh, we are very much aware that when you remove this timber, you leave it exposed to damage. So you'll notice these white areas. What that is, is that's two-part epoxy that sets up underwater. So we'd take the sample, and then Kieran would go in, he'd turn his fingers white, mixing this two-part epoxy together, this little putty thing, jam that thing in there in the hole. And what that does is that seals it off and ensures that uh, marine organisms can't damage it any further. So uh, what's the upshot to all this? Well, <laughs> we don't know that we have Endeavor 100% yet. We're getting there, though. I would say we're probably in the 90% uh, range at this point. Um, certainly the scantlings that we, uh, we got measurements on the timbers, they correlate very well. We've got 12 to 14 inches, and that's what it says for Endeavor. So that matches very well. Um, the species of the samples that we uh, had analyzed, or at least one set, came back as white oak. Now, that's good but not as good as we'd hope because uh, we don't know if it's European or white oak. Um, the, the samples that we got, uh, not enough was preserved that could really you know, bring it down to that level of detail, but white oak is good. And the chances are we're probably dealing with European white oak. Um, you don't see American white oak get used in ship construction as much as say live oak and a number of other species. Um, now, the fact that we have consistent use of this one species of timber indicates, to my mind and to Kieran's and others, British or European construction. Because you find that European shipbuilders tended to stick with one species, and the British particularly loved oak. That was what they built ships out of. And you made everything from oak, with the exception of a handful of timbers. So that's good. American colonial shipbuilders, by contrast, used everything. You would see them use oak, cedar, uh, mahogany, if they could get their hands on it, uh, pine, hackamatack, larch, any of these number of different wood species, they would use it all. And what you find on archaeological sites from that period is that those wood species differentiate timber to timber. I worked on a wreck site in Maine, for example, in the U.S., um, we had a series of frames that were oak, cedar, you know, just literally every frame, and they were all next to each other, were a different species of timber. So they're using different timber. And also, some of that timber was not very good for shipbuilding. It would tend to rot very quickly. So what you find is they build the ship, they use that timber, the timber starts to rot, they rip it out, they replace it with a different timber. So you see repair work quite a bit as well. And we don't see a lot of that here. 
So again, that's a very good sign. Um, so we're heading in the right direction. Um, you know, it could have been worse. We, we could have gotten timber, timber samples back that said, you know, American red cedar or something, and that had been it for us. Um, so where are we going from here? Well, we've still got some work to do. I think that's quite clear. Um, and I think we're at the point where we've done the degree of work we can do on what's visibly exposed above the seabed. We need to excavate. We've got to move some dirt. Big time. Um, so I'm not talking about excavating the entire wreck. I think in an initial phase, what would be best would be to excavate specific areas of the wreck. We can do trenches. And one of the things we would target would be specific construction features we know are particular to Endeavor. So we know Endeavor had what's called a stepped keelson. That was the timber above the keel. And what it did was the keel was here, the frames of the ribs came across the top of that. Keelson was put on top of that and locked that whole assembly into place. And it had a very unique construction feature for that timber. So what we need to do is excavate across the hull, find that keelson, and look for that stepping. The other thing that Kieran mentioned was that the keel and the end posts were made of English elm. So we need to find those end posts, and we need to find that keel, and we need to sample them, and we need to see if they come back as elm. If they come back as elm, and we can get maybe better samples on better preserved timber further down that comes back as absolutely European oak, I think that's going to have it in the bag, really, at that point. And we also want to uncover each end. That way we can get a complete overall length that's accurate, and we can compare that to the uh, archival records that we have. We need to do more 3D photogrammetry work. As I showed you, eh, not the best. So we have heard that in the winter ugh, in Rhode Island, the visibility clears up and it's like 30 meters, you know, so I can see all the way across this room. That's great from a 3D photogrammetry standpoint. It's not great when you have to get in it. So I'm, you know, I'm guarding myself for the fact I may have to dive in nearly freezing water. But we'll see how that turns out. Um, and yeah, finally, uh, you know, this is a very significant wreck site, um, not only to Australia, but also you know, uh, to certainly Great Britain and to the United States. Um, so I think we would want to do some limited recovery of artifacts. You know, maybe not get a whole bunch, but at least some that will help us in our analysis. Um, and some interpretation, and certainly an exhibition. Um, I know that people like to see things, and they like to see real things. And I think part of our job is to recover those things and create a situation where people can come and they can actually see them. They can experience them firsthand. Uh, and that's, that's certainly one of the things that we hope to do. And yeah, so we will uh, see where we go from here. But uh, I thank you very much for your time, and thanks for uh, listening. Thank you very much to Kieran and James for that fascinating presentation. Please don't join me in thanking them again. We only have time for a couple of questions, I think. Um, if you could please raise your hand and a microphone will, um, micro <laughs> microphone will be brought to you. Um, Can I ask either speaker 
what size area are we talking about? Is it the size of a small swimming pool? Or what size? From the... <laughs> I, I assume when the, the vessel went down that it, some of the bits and pieces spread. Yeah, um, yeah. if you're talking about what we call the discrete rec site, which is the bits where the hull is still articulated and yeah. everything's kind of still together, yeah, it's, it's really only... Uh, it'd be it'd be shy of 30 meters, probably about 20 meters or so. In length uh, and width is what. Would that's be? that's in length. Uh, in width, maybe mm, I wouldn't say any more than about mm, five to eight meters. Um, it's hard to tell though, because a lot of it's still buried. So mm. until we can uncover some of those areas and get a more accurate length and width, we won't know. But yeah, it would probably fit. It would definitely fit in an Olympic size swimming pool. So yeah. And what depth would that be? It's sitting around 20 meters, yeah, uh, which makes it challenging because it gets dark down there yeah. <laughs> at that depth. Yeah. Um, the, do you know who made the cannons on the original Never? And in which case, if you pulled up the cannons, you, can't, you wouldn't see a mark of recognition on the cannon? You want this one? I'll, I'll give this one to you. <laughs> we'll try that. Bit of a tag team here. Um, good question. We we do know who made the cannons on Endeavour. I don't personally know. I, I, I don't have that in my in my sort of computer in my brain because I'm getting old. Um, but uh, I don't have that information. But we do know who actually made them. It is likely. I do know that the cannon on display at the National Library, the one that belongs to the National Museum of Australia, that does have founding marks on the side. We know the size of the cannon. We know the weight of the cannon and I'm pretty sure we could figure out who made that cannon. If we did raise the cannon, those cannons on that site, it's known as the Kerry site, um, after the person who sort of first found it in RIMAP, um, there is a good possibility that we would find founding marks on that cannon. We've certainly found them in the past, and we could certainly use that information to um, narrow down the site if it is possibly Endeavour. One of the problems we do have is working within the legislation in Newport, Rhode Island, and one of the problems we have to consider is the conservation of that item, who's going to pay for it, basically. And the other item we have to worry about is the politics. Um, I have to be very careful what I say because this is being recorded, but it's very difficult to work in Newport, Rhode Island for all manners of reasons. Um, there's, we're dealing with uh, another country for a start that always complicates matters. They have different legislation, different rules. There's an issue to do with sovereignty of the item. Um, for instance, if Endeavour turns out to be Endeavour, if the we call Kerry site, it turns out to be Endeavour, who owns Endeavour? Is it a British vessel? Is it a British warship? Does it come? Is it a sovereign warship? Or is it a prize of war? Was it abandoned? It gets into all those issues. And it gets very political about um, uh, who actually owns the site and who has permission to recover items and so on. I'd love to raise one of the cannons from the site. Um, I'd love to chip off the concretion. I'd love to have a look for founding marks. But it does open a real can of worms. Um, but I can see the value to it, most certainly. You were talking about um, if it is the endeavour. So if it is the endeavour, um, then what? Um, is If uh, legislation has worked out as to who owns it or whatever, 
would it ever be raised to the surface, do you think? You know, like whatever's left of it or um, would that never be allowed or so on? Yeah, a good, a good question too. Um, we've looked at ways of that. It's very expensive to raise material from underwater environment, um, many, many thousands of dollars. There's also a shortage of, of people who actually treat that material. I'm not a material conservator. I would balk at the idea of raising that sort of material without having conservators next to me You can advise on that. One of the issues we do have is the expense. It is very expensive. There's also the question of, um, is it valid to raise it? Is there another way of recording the site in such a way that everyone can see the site without actually bringing the whole shipwreck to the surface? I like the idea of raising individual artefacts from the vessel. I think it's possible nowadays, with, especially with 3D photogrammetry, to actually reconstruct the vessel in, in some form. So we can print out all the information that James and Rene from the Silent World Foundation has been collecting through 3D photogrammetry, allows us to actually take the thing to a 3D printer. So we can actually 3D print the shipwreck if we wanted to. And I do know that in Fiji, I found out quite recently, that in Fiji they actually have a 3D printer that's big enough to print dinosaurs. <laughs> so it's three storeys high. So, and they can do anything um, for a price. So it is possible to actually replicate what's on the seabed by 3D printing. And that'd be probably a lot cheaper than getting a whole bunch of conservators and archaeologists over there for a couple of years to actually pop the thing to the surface. So there's other ways of looking at it other than bringing the whole thing up. Uh, yeah, I'm just a bit confused about the conundrum of the cannons going down with something that was sunk as a block ship, yep. sensibly. I would have thought the Royal Navy would have stripped everything of value off it before sinking it. So I was just wondering what the historiography timeline was. Was this done in haste or was it, uh, if it, if it was charted, as the historical rec archival document seems to show, that would suggest that not may not have been the case. So I'm just querying the issue that the ship went down with the cannons when it was w w apparently sunk deliberately as a block ship? Yep, they certainly, there's evidence on the other vessels that cannons were sunk with them. So on the hospital cannon site, hence the name, there's actually cannons on the hospital cannon site. There's also cannon on the barge site. One of the problems they had in Newport was that um, they only had a limited number of gunners with them. They did actually take, we know this from historical records, they took guns off some of the ships and used them to defend Newport against the French and the Americans. I think it's a case of also, they did all this in three days. So I think it's a case of in haste as well. They probably looked at the ships, they probably said, I, we have enough ammunition, we have enough cannonball for those 12 pounders, those 24 pounders. We have very little ammunition for the four pounders. Let's put them down. Let's not worry about recovering them. There's also a good strong possibility that those four pounders weren't actually mounted on the deck. Looking at them, on the site is a strong possibility they're actually mounted, they're actually stored in the hold of the ship. And so that would have created a difficulty for actually getting them out, to hoiking them out and bringing them ashore. But I do know they recovered some of the guns from some of those block ships. Thank you. Thank you all very much. To end, I've just got some comments. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Australian in and international lenders to our exhibition, especially those institutions, including the National Maritime Museum, um, who've permitted their extraordinary collections to travel across oceans. I thank the Australian government for providing 
significant funding, including through the National Collecting Institution's Touring Outreach Program and the Australian Government International Exhibitions Insurance Program. We're also grateful for the financial and in-kind support provided by our generous exhibition partners, ACTU AGL, the Pratt Foundation, the Kenyan Foundation and Foxtel's History Channel. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves today. I certainly have. Um, Cook in the Pacific will remain open until the 10th of February, and I invite you all to take a look through it if you haven't already. Please join me in thanking James and Kieran for this afternoon's fantastic presentations. Thank you.